Good morning, Gospel Hope. Well, we're excited to gather once again here and work through our Knowing God series. And today, we're going to be talking about one of the most challenging doctrines in all of the Scripture, the doctrine of the Trinity. Before we dive into this idea, let's ask the Lord for his help together. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. And we thank you for Jesus and his death on the cross on our behalf, and that through him, we have access to you. We thank you for the Spirit who is working in us right now to open our eyes and illuminate us from your word. I pray that today we would be drawn into fellowship with the triune God. We thank you for who you are and cause us to see you more fully, more clearly by the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Although you won't find the doctrine of the Trinity or the word Trinity found anywhere in Scripture, you can't go in the back of your Bible and look it up. It's just not there. But the idea of the triune God is woven through the entire Bible. In fact, on the very first page of Scripture in Genesis chapter 1, we read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Then, as the biblical storyline unfolds and you get to the very end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we see all of creation gathered around the throne and singing the praises of God in this way. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. The idea is simply this. Though the God of the Bible is one, he is also more than one. Now, in some senses, that doesn't make any logical sense whatsoever. And if your head spins at a statement like that, then you're in good company. Because when you begin to discuss the Trinitarian nature of God, let me tell you something very plainly. You're diving into the deep end of the theological pool. And just a warning, there's no bottom. Nobody can fully wrap their mind around the concept that God is three yet one. Yet, throughout the centuries, Christians and theologians have wrestled with this idea, and that has caused them to come up with the concept of the Trinity, or more specifically, tri-unity, or three-in-oneness. That is, as you survey the Bible's teaching, it plainly articulates this idea, that the God of the Bible exists in three persons, and yet is one. Or a very simple definition of the Trinity could be put like this. The one God eternally exists in three equal and distinct persons. Now, as you've already kind of heard me say, the, the fact of the matter is, is that the doctrine of the Trinity is a difficult doctrine. Now, it's not difficult in the sense that you might initially expect. It's not difficult to discern what the Bible teaches on this matter. The Bible is actually very plain about the fact that God exists in three distinct persons and yet one God. But what is difficult is it's for us to wrap our mind around that concept. We don't have anything in terms of human analogies or metaphors that exactly line up with that. Or to put it very plainly, it is difficult for finite humans to fully comprehend the infinite God. Um, you know, as believers have thought about this for centuries, some with the best of intentions have sought to come up with some analogies to help us to define and understand the Trinity better. The problem is, is that all analogies in some ways fall short. For instance, some believers with the best of intentions, as I said, have said the Trinity is like an egg. So 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are represented by the shell, the yolk, and the white of the egg. Well, there's some merit to that word picture, but the problem is, is that would make each person of the divine trinity just part of God. And as we'll see, that's not exactly what the Bible teaches. Others have said, well, maybe God is more like water. And water, as you know, can exist in three different forms, vapor, liquid, and solid. Um, this again has some merit. There's some good ideas that are folded into that metaphor, but the problem once again is that water can't exist as all three of those things at the same time. And that would make God at one time, he is the spirit, at one time he is the son, and at one time as the father. And, and that's not what the Bible teaches either. So if all of our human analogies fall short, is there anything that can help us as we think about this difficult doctrine of the Trinity? Is there any way that we can kind of break it apart and think about it in such a way that would be more comprehensible to our human and limited capacities? Well, fortunately for us, the answer is yes. And here is the answer, Optimus Prime. Just kidding, kind of. Uh, let me unpack what I mean by that. Well, instead of thinking of analogies or metaphors let's ask the question about the trinity in this way let's think about his nature and his person or ask two questions what is god and who is god you know mere mortal human beings like you and i are just one person and one nature so for instance who am i i am ryan what am i i am a human being and you could fill that in with, with anybody that you know. Who is she? She is Tiandra. That's her person. What is she? She is a human being. Who is he? He is Rick. What is he? The jury's still out. We're not exactly sure on Rick. We're puzzling this out. Just kidding, Rick. We love you sometimes. Uh, the idea is simply this. Human beings have one person, one person, and one nature. And this is where Optimus Prime is a little bit helpful for us. So, who is the star of arguably the greatest cartoon series of all time? Optimus Prime. That's his name. That's his person. What is he? Well, he actually has two natures. He is both a robot and a truck. So one person, two natures. Then you get to the God of the Bible. Unlike human beings who are one person and one nature, Unlike Optimus Prime, who is one person, two natures, God is the exact opposite. Who is he? He is Father, he is Son, he is Holy Spirit. That is his person. There are three persons. What is he? He is God. So God, unlike humans, unlike fictional robot transformers, is three persons and one nature. Which again reminds us of the simple reality. There's no one like God. He's in a category all by himself. Analogies fail. Even little charts are somewhat limited in helping us understand God because he is beyond our comprehension. Or as it says in Psalm 145, the Lord is great and highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Uh, what is that saying there? The author of scripture is simply saying you can't get to the bottom fully. You can't fully get your mind around who God is. And though the doctrine of the Trinity falls into the unsearchable category of God, it is still how God has revealed himself to us. God did not reveal himself to us without the Trinity. He has revealed himself 
through the Trinity. And here's the wonderful reality of that. Though we cannot know God fully, we can know God truly. See, what do you mean by that, Ryan? Well, track with me for a moment. I have a daughter, Geneva. She is 10 years old. And my daughter knows some things about math, but she also has some limitations because she's only 10. For instance, Geneva does not do geometry. She does not do trigonometry as of yet. Um, she does not even know calculus, what that means. Well, frankly, full disclosure, I had three semesters of calculus in college, and I'm not sure I know what it means. So, Geneva, you're in good company. But the simple fact of the matter is, is just because Geneva does not know math exhaustively, that doesn't mean she doesn't know it truly. She does know addition and subtraction and multiplication and division. And, and the wonderful truth of the matter is this. Even though we can't get down to the bottom of God, and know all that there is about his tri triune nature. We can know him truly and really. So don't let the doctrine of the Trinity blow your mind to such a degree where you say, well, I can't know anything about God. No, no, no. You may not be able to penetrate the mystery of the Trinity, but you can know some real and factual and wonderful and beautiful true truths about God in his triune nature. So, where do we begin with a difficult doctrine such as this? Well, as theologians and Christians have thought about this idea of Trinity down through the century, there are really, unsurprisingly, three statements that you need to embrace if you're to have a biblical understanding of the Trinity. And let me go through them one at a time, and then we'll unpack them carefully here together. The statements are simply this. You begin with this. There is one God. Second statement is simply this. There are three persons in the one God. And the third statement is simply this. All three persons are equally God. We want to take a look at each of these in terms and explore for the next few minutes together the foundations of the doctrine of the Trinity. So let's begin with the first statement that I shared with you. There is one God. To put it plainly, Christians are monotheist. We believe in one God. We don't think about or believe in some sort of petty pantheon of God warring and squabbling for positions of superiority. We don't think of any kind of hierarchy of, of godlings and demigods and true gods. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the, paint, the picture that the Bible paints. This is subtly emphasized in the passage of scripture that was read for us this morning in Matthew chapter 28. Here's what it says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now track with me here on this next little phrase. Baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You see, though disciples of Christ are to be baptized in recognition of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew here says this very plainly, that they are baptized into one name. I think that's Matthew's understated way of acknowledging the three-in-oneness of our Lord. But the Bible doesn't merely imply that God is one. It screams it. In fact, as you read through the whole of Scripture, you cannot walk away with a different conclusion if you're taking the Bible seriously. For instance, one of the most familiar passages in the Old Testament is called the Shema, which Old Testament Israel prayed on a regular basis, and it simply begins with this. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse number 4. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
or skip over several centuries and you move to the prophet Isaiah where the Lord speaks for himself. It says this in Isaiah chapter 45. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God but me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. And then the writers of the New Testament pick up a very similar theme. Paul, the apostle, says it this way in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. For there is one God. I mean, he's not pulling any punches there. And then just to make the case as clear as clear can be, James adds some sarcasm to the mix. James chapter 2, verse number 19. You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. In other words, the uniform teaching of Scripture is this. There is only one God. When you read the Bible, you come away with this conclusion that God is singular. He is by himself. He is on the throne alone, and there is no competition. Which leads us to the next kind of principle there, or foundational idea. Not only is there one God, but two, there are three persons in the one God. Let's go back again to Matthew chapter 28, and we see in that passage another hint that shows that God exists not only as the one and only God, but in three distinct persons. Matthew 28, verse number 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, now notice this, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here, clearly, the writer of Scripture makes a distinction between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Look, it's simply this. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. They are three distinct persons within the one God. And if this is far from an isolated instance, when you read through the Bible, we see constantly the writers of Scripture, though affirming the deity of all three persons of the Trinity, they're making distinction between those persons. So we read famously in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, this passage teaches us something very profound, namely that Jesus, the Word, which we see later in John chapter 1, is who that is referring to, is not only present with God and eternally existent with the Father, but at the same time, he is also distinct from him. He is with God and he is God at the same time. We see the same type of distinction made between the Holy Spirit and the other members of the Trinity. As Jesus is preparing for his final hours on earth and interacting with his disciples, we read this in John chapter 14, and we see all three of the members of the Trinity present and active in this situation. John 14, verse number 26. This is Jesus speaking. I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I have told you. Here we see Jesus speaking, the Father sending, and the Holy Spirit coming, all three of them having distinct roles. You see, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not just different ways of looking at the same thing. They are three distinct persons of the one God. And as we will see, this has tremendous importance. Any attempt, listen to this church, any attempt to diminish the distinctiveness of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is an attempt to diminish the very glory of God. God's revelation of himself as the triune God 
is for the eternal good of his people. This is not a theological triviality. God wants to have a relationship with you. And friends, he is triune. He is three in one. And if in some ways you minimize or ignore one or more persons of the Trinity, you are missing out on the rich and robust relationship that the God of the Bible, the triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit wants to have with you. He desires to fellowship with you, not as a God that is made up of just one person, but a God that is made up of three persons. This is not insignificant. This is reality. The God of the Bible is triune and he wants to interact with you as such. Which brings us to the third and final stroke here. There is one God. There are three persons in that one God. And finally, all three people are equally God. Uh, go again to Matthew chapter 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Look, if the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not on equal footing or share the same nature, this would indeed be a very unusual formula for the Lord Jesus Christ to use. It would be like Jesus is somehow subordinating if they weren't all on the same level. But it seems to me this is Christ's way of simply saying, my Father, myself, and the Holy Spirit all share in a divine nature. And once again, we're not forced to deduce our doctrine of the Trinity just from one passage of Scripture. It's littered all over the Bible, and we see time and time again each of the persons of the Trinity being affirmed as equally God. First of all, obviously the Father is God. So we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse number 6, There is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. Second, the Son is God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse number 3 says it very succinctly. And the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And thirdly, the Spirit is also God. Over in the book of Acts, where Peter rebukes Ananias for his lie, we read this account. Ananias why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Verse number four, you have not lied to people, but to God. And this is just scratching the surface. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of texts that clearly affirm the personhood, the divinity of each of the three persons in the Trinity. So if I say all this and in a sense, you, you hear it and you're like, Ryan, I, I'm tracking with you with what the Bible says. But to be honest, my head is spinning a little bit. Good. Good. You're in good company. Because this is a way, once again, that I remind you that it is a difficult doctrine. Not because the Bible is unclear, but because it is a beyond our ability to fully comprehend. So let me summarize graphically what we've learned so far and maybe give you some handlebars to hang on to the doctrine of the Trinity. So here's a little graphic that just goes back and shows us what we've already stated. First of all, this graphic illustrates this. There is one God. There's not multiple gods or some heavenly hierarchy. As the Bible says, the Lord our God is one. Second, this diagram illustrates for us that there are three persons in the one God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father. They are distinct. 
And third, this diagram affirms for us graphically simply this, all three people, all three persons are equally God. The Father is God. The Son is God. And the Spirit is God. If you keep those three things in mind, there is one God, there is three persons in the one God, and all three persons are equally God, then you have properly summarized a biblical understanding of the Trinity. Though the Trinity is a mystery, it is one that God wants us to explore. No, we can't fully get our mind around this, but this is how our God has revealed himself to us. And therefore, is it incumbent upon us to pursue him, to seek him out, and to learn of this mysterious and beautiful glory that he has shown us in this wonderful and incomprehensible doctrine of the Trinity? So where does this leave us? You know, thus far, for the most part, I've just kind of been teaching or unpacking or outlining what the Bible says about the Trinity. But what does this call us to do, or how is this called us to change our life in light of what the Bible teaches? Well, I'm so glad you asked. You didn't. I did. But I want to give you three ways here. Three ways that the doctrine of the Trinity is meant to change us and to shape us and to transform our lives. So here they are. Number one, because of the doctrine of the Trinity, because God is three in one, you should be thankful for the Trinity. Sometimes, even believers, like many of you, who are very serious about their faith, can subtly minimize the triune nature of God. Listen, I want to say this very clearly because I think it's something that we can tend to forget. If you have trusted in the gospel, if you have been rescued from your sins, you were saved by the triune God. You were not just saved by the Father. You were not just saved by Jesus. You were not just saved by the Spirit. You were saved by the triune God, and this is important. The Spirit didn't adopt you. The Father did. The Father didn't regenerate you. The Spirit did. The Spirit didn't die for you. Jesus did. Your salvation was a beautiful symphony written, composed, and performed by the triune God. And he wants you not only to appreciate the epic scope, the magnificence of the whole thing, but he wants you to hear the individual part of the violin and the cello and the flute. He wants you to listen in carefully so that you see what each member of the Trinity did in saving you. You know, one thing that um, my family and I have done during coronavirus is that my daughters, particularly, and I have been cooking dinner for the family. And let's say we brought out a, a feast that we prepared, something that we worked hard on, and it was a really good meal, and we laid it out on the table. And somebody sitting around the table said, hey, thanks for the meal to all who prepare it. Would that be a meaningful compliment? Absolutely. We would be grateful for that, and that is a meaningful gesture, but it would be even more meaningful if somebody said, Hey, who made this salsa over here? Oh, that was Sydney. Sydney, you did a wonderful job, and I appreciate the labor and the, the flavors that you imparted into that dish. And who, who made this over here? Oh, Selah chopped up those vegetables. Oh, Selah, you did such a good job. All of a sudden, this general praise goes to specific praise. And I think that's part of the wonder of the doctrine of the Trinity, that it wasn't just Jesus that saved us, or the Father that saved us, or the Spirit that saved us. It was the three in one that saved us. And we are meant to celebrate and worship each member of the Trinity for their wonderful work in saving us and bringing us from life, from death into life. 
as you think about your salvation, don't just think about the cross. For sure, think about the cross. But think about all that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have done to rescue you and bring you into relationship with Him. So the first thing we need to do as a result of the doctrine of the Trinity is to be thankful. Be thankful for the triune God. The second thing I want to emphasize is this. Not only should we be thankful for the Trinity, but we should be one like the Trinity. He said, this is always, this passage of scripture has always amazed me. Just before Jesus was getting ready to die, complete his work here on the earth, he prayed for his disciples and he gathers in me, prays for them what, what I have always found to be a unique and interesting prayer. John chapter 17, verse number 21. Here's what Jesus says. May they be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. This is amazing to me. Look, the church, God's people, has been invited into fellowship with the Trinity. Did you catch that there? Lord, make them one. But don't just give them this kind of superficial oneness. Make them one like you and I are one. Bring them into the fellowship that we have. God desires his people to be unified because he is unified. Look, Gospel Hope, we are a diverse church. Diverse racially and economically and generationally and politically. We have people that think in all kinds of different ways in our church. And as you know, God has been so gracious and so kind to make us one in some ways. I mean, we are so grateful for the sweet sense of unity that we have. And do you know that that's only possible because our God is one? Look, we can be unified because our God is unified. He is the expert, the absolute primary source of all unity because for all creation, from before the foundation of the world, before anything existed, God was enjoying perfect fellowship among Father and Son and Holy Spirit, enjoying tri-unity forever and ever. And then Jesus, before he dies, says, Lord, Father, Make my people one, just like you and I are one. This is mind-blowing. Oneness is not some sort of, you know, side hustle. Oneness is not tertiary to the Christian faith. It is primary because the God of the Bible is Trinity. And then he goes on further to say, look, look at the result. When the church experiences oneness, then the world believes that Jesus was sent by the Father. Look, we're in this time and we're like, man, how can we proclaim the gospel? How can we take the gospel beyond the walls of the church? Well, listen to this. In light of the doctrine of the Trinity, one of the best ways to love our world is by loving one another. One of the ways that we can show the greatness and the authenticity of Jesus is by being one by accepting this blood-bought gift of Christ on the cross and that we enjoy fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with his spirits. The Trinity urges us towards unity. Number three, not only should we be one like the Trinity, not only should we be thankful for the Trinity, but we should be amazed by the Trinity. This doctrine should blow our mind. Listen, church. 
Our God is three in one. I don't get that. He is incomprehensible. But this is a glorious mystery that we cannot fully wrap our minds around. Our God is not just like us, only a little better. He is in a completely different category. He is beyond the scope of our imagination. Our God is triune. So let me close this morning by simply reminding us what the Lord says in his word about his otherness, the fact that he is not like us. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse number 26. There is no one like the God of Israel. He rides across the heavens to help you across the skies in majestic splendor. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse number 2. No one is holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. Lord, there is none like you, for you are great and your name is full of power. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? That title belongs to you alone among all the wise people of the earth in all the kingdoms of the world. There is no one like you. Amen? There is no one like our God. He is triune for all eternity. He has existed on a plane and in a way that our finite, small human minds cannot grasp. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how powerful you are. God is beyond our comprehension. And I love that we worship a God that we can't fully grasp. I think the only way really fittingly to wrap this up is simply affirm the writers of what that old hymn says, holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us to be amazed by your triune greatness? We love you and we thank you for sending your son into the world to rescue us for giving your spirit to give us life. And I pray today that we would rejoice in you and be drawn to worship you in greater ways. Lord, grip us with this sweet and amazing and mind-blowing doctrine. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.